0: Well, five years ago this month, Steve Jobs died. Uh, Many of you remember Steve Jobs, I'm sure. Uh, This is a picture of him in his early days in 1984. Um, Steve Jobs, one of the founders of Apple Computer, um, one of the visionaries behind the success of the Pixar Motion Picture Studio, um, and, of course, uh, the, the visionary who brought us the iPad, the iPod, and the iPhone. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have one of those things, either a Mac or an iDevice? Okay, all right, take that, you Android people. So, um, all right, we'll pray for you though. Um, so, uh, Steve Jobs died, and um, uh, I saw. You know, I, I I was I grew up. You know, kind of paying attention to Steve Jobs, and I still pay attention to him, even in the news. I saw this this gadget in the news the other day. This is an iPhone-based spectrometer uh, with 99% accuracy rate. That's an iPhone 5 there, uh, kind of on this little piece of equipment. And you put samples in this uh, little, uh, um, there's like a little tray underneath it there. You can hardly see. But um, it, takes, it, it filters the light and then takes a picture and then processes that because it's really a very powerful computer. And it has a 99% accuracy rate in detecting a protein found in about a dozen different kinds of cancer. And the beauty of this system is that um, it 's not the first uh, uh, smartphone based spectrometer but it 's the first one with that degree of accuracy um, and it has the potential to actually transform the way that cancer is detected in many parts of the world because that is that is it that 's the whole setup you don 't need any additional computers or microscopes or anything else so um, I think Steve Jobs would be pretty pretty pleased with this piece of his legacy, as you know he died from cancer he died from Uh, after a many-year battle with liver cancer. So I think he would be happy to know that part of his legacy is um, devices that will help in the detection of cancer and its treatment. So so um, for all that, it is kind of a dopey-looking device. It looks kind of, you know, Rube Goldberg, kind of lashed-together kind of thing there. Um, And if it is dopey, If it kind of has a dopey look to it, really, I think that that is, that is very characteristic of, um, what Steve Jobs' legacy is. Um, I, I read a, um, I read an interview with, uh, Johnny Ives, Sir Johnny Ives, as he's now known. He was, uh, one of the industrial designers who collaborated with Steve Jobs. Uh, Johnny Ives, uh, developed the, not the interior parts, but the, the look of these two iconic, um, Apple devices, the original G3, Bondi Blue iMac, and the uh, iPod, the original iPod with the navigation wheel. Those were designed by uh, Johnny Ive. And when he was talking about his collaboration with Steve Jobs, he said this. He said, Steve used to say to me, and he said this a lot, hey, Johnny, here's a dopey idea. And sometimes they were really dopey. Sometimes they were truly dreadful. But sometimes... Sometimes they took the air from the room, and they left us both completely silent. Bold, crazy, magnificent ideas, or quiet, simple ones, which in their subtlety, their detail, were utterly profound. And just as Steve loved ideas and loved making stuff, he treated the process of creativity with a rare and wonderful reverence. You see, I think he, better than anyone, understood that while ideas ultimately can be so powerful, they begin as fragile, barely formed thoughts, So easily missed, so easily compromised, so easily just squished. That's Sir Johnny Ives. I would agree with him, uh, except I would not limit it to uh, a fragile state at the beginning of an idea. I think most ideas are fragile for their entire lifespan. I think some of them are squished very early on. Uh, People compromise or they just say, yeah, you're right, it's probably not a good idea but a lot of ideas, they suffer a kind of death of a thousand cuts as as people chip away at it. Well-meaning people chip away at the ideas until pretty soon there's nothing left of them. You know, I saw this movie this summer, uh, maybe some of you saw it, and uh, there's a picture here um, where uh, one of the characters talks about a pep talk. He says, that wasn't much of a pep talk. And it, I started thinking, you know, we've got a word for a pep talk, but we don't have a word for the opposite of pep talk what is the opposite of a pep talk it's just plain talk right this is this is why we we have these words for for things that are kind of exceptional and we don't have a word for things that aren't we have motivational posters we don't have a word for the opposite of a, of a poster a demotivational poster because we don't need it they're called coworkers or or maybe family members right <laughs> all right see you you worked at the same place as I did so so there actually is a company that makes demotivational posters, in case you're curious. Their name is Despair. Here's their, here's their trademark. Um, I kid you not, this is actual registered trademark from back in the 90s. Um, they are despair.com, and you can go there for all your demotivational poster needs. I'll just show you two examples here. This one here says, get to work, and uh, you aren't being paid to believe in the power of your dreams. So you can imagine putting that up on your, your cubicle or something like that. And the next one says, potential... Not everyone gets to be an astronaut when they grow up. (laughs) So, um, And they've got hundreds, literally hundreds. They've been in this business for 20 years. Uh, And the reason they're able to stay in business is because they add a little bit of humor. They're not really serious. If they were serious, they could never stay in business because there's so much competition. Because everybody is a demotivator. The world is filled with demotivators, well-meaning people who care about you deeply, and are concerned for you, and they just want you to be reasonable and scale it back a little bit. The world is full of demotivators, demoralizers. And so today we're going to talk about dealing with demoralizers. We've been in this conversation, we're actually wrapping it up today, this conversation about having a big faith. The The idea of a big faith is that faith is, is, is the gap between where we are and what we hope that god will do what what our hopes are from god and when when the gap between where we are and what we hope god will do is very small that doesn't give god much of an arena to work in that when we have a big place when our when that gap that gap between our our current circumstances and what we hope from god is big that gives god a big arena where he can do big things but in a small arena God may be at work, but who could tell because, the, because the, the 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 things that he is doing are so minute. So we want to have a big faith, a bold, risk-taking faith that lets us see what God is doing so that that in turn will give us stronger faith and then it'll be bigger and so forth. We'll be able to inspire others with our faith. So we want to have a big faith. And what we've seen is we've talked about that is we've seen that that a big faith, a bold faith, Acts. it doesn 't wait for God to make the first move that when we're con- when we 're convicted that something is god 's will for us that we act we don 't wait for God to to kind of show us it 's going to be safe that wouldn 't be faith that 's sight so what we do is we we act as soon as we are convicted and we step into the Jordan River we cross the the, the Red sea whatever it is we act without waiting for God to act so we also uh, saw that we should add a zero. When we bring small requests to God, it's not a compliment. When we say, God, I really want you to find me a parking lot, but I don't trust you with my life or my finances or my relationships, that's not a compliment to God. So what we want to do is we want to bring big requests to God. It actually glorifies God. It magnifies Jesus when we bring big things to him. And then um we, we talked about one of the reasons we don't do that, we talked about how sometimes we're afraid to get out of the boat because we're afraid we're gonna look like an idiot. We're gonna look stupid and people won't be impressed with us. And what we saw is that when we get out of the boat, when we worry more about impressing Jesus than we worry about impressing the people around us, we may not impress them, but we will certainly inspire them. So we announce our our intentions, we commit ourselves to a course of action, and then we inspire the people around us instead of instead of um impressing them. And finally, last week, we remembered that we shouldn't stop believing because God has been waiting. God has been waiting not as long as you have. God has been waiting far longer. God has been waiting years, decades, millennia. God has been waiting for all eternity, for all the pieces to come together so that he can do something amazing in your life. And too often we stop believing. We say, oh, it's not going to happen, and we give up. So what we're called to do is to be people who don't stop believing. And then finally, today we're going to wrap it up by looking at demoralizers. Because why do we stop believing? We stop believing because there's people in our lives, there aren't demotivational posters, but there are demotivational people. There's people who speak logical, reasonable words into our life that cause us to surrender our faith. So what I want to do today is look at a story from the old testament the hebrew scriptures it actually appears in no less than 3 places in the hebrew scriptures it appears in second kings and second chronicles and also in the writings of the prophet isaiah it is a story about a time when israel was threatened by the empire of assyria assyria was the greatest empire the world had known at that point it spanned from the persian gulf all the way up the 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 fertile crescent And down the Mediterranean coast, and it had conquered areas like Syria, and what was once part of Egypt, part part of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and now was threatening Judah. The only part of the Holy Land that's still, uh, under the control of God's people is Judah, and it's now uh, under threat. That the armies have moved into the area, and they've besieged all the cities. So, we're reading about a story that happened when Israel, uh, when when Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel, was surrounded, uh, its cities were surrounded by the Assyrian army. And they've been, uh, they've been besieged now for some months. So the people inside the city are hungry. There's only so much food and water in there. It's on, they're on rations of some kind, probably pretty hungry by now. And the king or whoever's in charge of the king's army sends an envoy to negotiate with him. So the white flag goes up and he walks up to the gates of the city and these, uh, emissaries come out to, to, talk to him. So they're talking to him, and that's where we pick up the story in verse four. It says the Rabshakeh, he is the, um, he's the envoy, the, the, Assyrian. He says to them, tell this to Hezekiah. Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, on what do you base this confidence of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? You know, I've heard, you know, this is not our first conference. I've heard that you trust in the Lord. But that's just words. What is you know? How does that translate into real world confidence? You don't have anything to base that on. He says. He says. Um, here, let's 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 make a wager. He says we will give you two thousand horses if you can only find two thousand riders for them. He says I'll spot you two thousand horses because you're weak. You can't possibly win. All you've got is words. So our first point is exactly that. Hezekiah doesn't go out. He sends these emissaries out. But if he were there, he would have said, it's not about my capabilities. It's never been about my capabilities. It's not about whether I've got 2,000 riders for your 2,000 horses. It's not about whether I've got strategy and power for war. It's about me trusting God. It's never been about me. It's always been about God. So our first point is, your capabilities are not the point. But God's are. Your, your capabilities are not the point God's are. So the Rabshakeh has told them you're weak. And they respond to him. They say this, this, uh, these three people, Eliakim, Shevna, and Joah, they say to him, Hey, I don't know if you picked up on this guy, but you've got an audience here. All the people are standing on the wall behind us. And they're listening to you, so we would appreciate it if you wouldn't talk in Hebrew, because they can hear you. We'd much rather if you would talk in Aramaic, because we understand that. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people on the wall behind us. And the Rab Shaka says, that's the point. What do you think I'm doing this for? So he stands and calls out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, he starts talking past the emissaries to the people up on the wall. He says, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you rely on the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. He says, the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Israel, a uh, king of Assyria. He says, don't listen to Hezekiah. For this is the bargain that the king of Assyria is offering you. He says, make your peace with me. Defect. Sneak out. Jump over the wall. Climb down over the wall. Come out here. Defect. Better yet, go out through the gate and leave it open behind you. That would be ideal. He says, come out to me. Make your peace with me. And then, I know you've been hungry for many months. You're kind of thirsty. You're on rations. But now, once you you do that... You can eat from your own fig tree and drink water from your own cistern. Boy, it'll be awesome. Until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. He says, he says, look, you're going to lose. You might as well jump on the bandwagon. You might as well get on the, the winning side here. Okay. So when you do that, you'll eat again. That'll be a nice relief. And then what we'll do is we're going to deport you to another part of our empire. That's the Assyrian strategy. We always take people from one place and we move them to another place. That makes the, the place they came from weak because they're missing some of their, their people. You know, half of that society has now been moved somewhere else. And it also makes you Somewhere it makes you kind of part of the empire somewhere else. That if I move, if I move you from here to Canada, you're, you're, the Canadians won't trust you, right? They they won't trust you to to join in a rebellion because they don't know who you are. So it actually works both ways. It weakens the place you came from, and it makes you not a threat wherever you go to. So he says, we're going to deport you to a land like your own. Now just stop and think about it this is this is ridiculous i mean suppose finland conquered america okay and they said we're going to deport you okay we're going to deport you to finland okay it might be a land very much like alaska okay i don't know i've never been there but judging from a globe i would imagine there's some similarities but would it be the same if somebody conquered anchorage you know and and said i'm sending you to finland right what happens to your bank account what happens to your car When you get to Finland, do you know how to talk the language? Do you have a job you can do there? He's saying it's a land like your own land, but it's, it's not. It's a huge disruption in your life. And yet it has a certain appeal to it. You know, I could learn to live there. You know, I could, I could pick up the language. I could kind of start over kind of, you know, beats being hungry. And the second point is this. Virtual reality, something that sounds almost like what you've got now, almost like the thing that you've put your hopes on, is a fancy way to say not the thing you've got your hopes on. Virtual reality is unreality. This is what people do. They they say to us that what you're, what you're asking for is really impossible. You need to be reasonable. You need to scale that back. You need to settle for something less. You need to to have something that's a little more doable, a little more achievable. So they say, why don't you settle for some virtual reality here? It won't be like living in Judah, but it'll be almost the same. But we know it's not. And yet it has appeal because it sounds like it might be almost the same. Virtual reality is another word for unreality. So the Reb Shikha goes on. He says, he says, What are you basing your hope on? He says, don't let Hezekiah mislead you, saying the Lord will save us. Why would the Lord be any different? He says, "Uh, there are all these gods of all these countries, and they've never stood up. They've never been able to keep uh, Assyria from conquering them. Why would you be any different? See, this is the problem with virtual reality. If you settle for something less than the real thing, then ultimately you just get confused. All these people... Believe that their idols were capable of saving them. The, these countries, Hamath and Arpad and Sepharvaim and Samaria, they thought that their idols could save them, but their idols are virtual, their idols are not real. And so the, the Reb Shachar he assumes that God is the same way. He assumes that everybody has always compromised in the area of religion. Everybody has always kind of settled for something that's realistic And that means it won't be any good when the chips are down. He says, have they saved these countries? Who among all the gods of these countries? These idols have never done any good to anybody. Why would the Lord be any different? He has never encountered the living God. And so he assumes that the God of Israel is the same as all the others. So he keeps saying, don't listen to Hezekiah. See, Hezekiah has encountered the living God. Hezekiah has some sense of what God can do. Hezekiah says, the Lord will save us. And he says, don't listen to Hezekiah. And so if we're going to overcome the people in our lives, the the demotivators, the demoralizers, we need to find our own Hezekiahs. We need to find people and give them permission to speak to us. We need to say, look, I've been to the doctor. You know, we've been to an attorney. My kids are doing some things that I just can't support. We need to find a Hezekiah and say, look, trouble is coming my way. And I know what the temptation is going to be. The temptation is going to be to quit trusting God. And I need you. I need you to be my Hezekiah. I need you to tell me that the Lord will save me. I need someone who has permission to speak into my life when all I see is doom and can say the Lord will save me. So find a Hezekiah and listen to them. Maybe for some of us, the Hezekiahs, like Hezekiah himself, were appointed. I mean, Hezekiah was king. Nobody voted for him. Hezekiah was appointed. We will, in a couple of weeks, elect ruling elders from this church, maybe they are our Hezekiahs. Maybe they can actually say, the Lord will save us as we look at the problems that that this church is facing either in its ministry or in its very existence. Find a Hezekiah and listen to what they have to say to you. So the Reb Shikha finishes his talk. and It says, they were silent and answered him not a word for the king's command was do not answer him. When they're, when they're confronted with the impeccable logic of settling for captivity somewhere else, giving in, losing their independence, becoming a vassal state, or maybe getting deported to another land. When they're confronted with that, they don't answer back. Because that's the path you go down. And you find yourself conceding one point, and then the next point, and then the next point. He says, don't have that conversation. See, this isn't about whether this is the right widget to use on a processor. I mean, This is not a place that's susceptible to argument. This is a binary choice. You either trust God or you don't trust God. The Lord can save you or the Lord can't. And if you find yourself negotiating on whether the Lord can save you, pretty soon you'll, you'll be at the place where you agree the Lord can't save you. So he says... Don't answer them. This is not a question of how to do something right or wrong. It's a question of can the Lord save us or not. So we don't need to trust God. We only need to trust God. We don't need to defend God. We only need to trust God. We don't need to defend him. I'm going to spoil it for you. If you read chapter 37, you see what happens. Hezekiah runs into the temple and tells God, hey, this guy outside, he's insulting you. He doesn't say, hey, I've got worries. He says, you have been insulted. What are you going to do about it? He dumps the problem back on God because we don't need to defend God. God is capable of defending himself. The lesson, the lesson, the the application for this whole series is to have a big, bold, daring faith, to have the kind of faith we can lean on that we know will hold us up when the chips are down, to have the kind of faith we can leap into knowing that whatever happens, it will be better than we could have hoped. And so, how do we do that? Well, we remember it's not about our capabilities. It's about God's capabilities. It's not settling to something that sounds like it's almost as good. It's finding people who can speak encouragement to us, people who can be a Hezekiah to us, And remembering that this is not our battle. This is God's battle. God is capable of defending himself. And the reason for that is so that we can have a bold and daring faith. My prayer for you, my prayer for us as a church, is we become that kind of people. We become the kind of people where there's a huge gap between where we are and the things that we have set our hope on for God to do for us. Because that is the playing field. That is the arena where God does miracles let's pray loving god we read in the scriptures that you are a god who does wonders and we have so few wonders that we can point to we have theologians who say the the times of miracles has ceased And Lord, we don't expect you to do miracles every day and all the time. They wouldn't be miraculous if they were. But Jesus says we can move mountains if we have faith the size of a grain of mustard. So Lord, we pray you would give us at least that much faith, just a tiny, tiny bit of faith, something big enough for you to work with, something that you could do wonders in our lives for our benefit, and to inspire the people who know us. We pray all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.